where is your, where do you turn first in times of trouble? When, when the going gets a bit tough and you need some help, where do you turn first? Your first port of call is probably your highest allegiance. What are you trusting in most to help you? Maybe you turn to yourself. Look, I can only trust myself. I better knuckle down and sort this. Perhaps you turn to other people, like uh, your spouse or a friend or, or um, your, your children, probably adult children, if we're talking about turning to help. We think those people will sort it out. I can rely on them. Perhaps you turn to other things. Maybe you turn to substances, food, booze, narcotics, or activities, hobbies, movies, games to drown out the problems and escape the trouble. Who's your deliverer of choice? Kids, when, when you have trouble, I'm sure you turn to your parents, which is a good thing. God gave you your parents to care and protect you. But you know what? While God, your parents are God's gift to help you in your early years, as you grow, they're helping you put your dependence and trust in God, not in them. They're helping you to look to Him. Your dependence on them should be replaced by a dependence on God. They will help you follow Jesus and trust Him. You know, we serve God first and then we look to those other things. God has given us plenty of things to help us, as we're talking about, friends, family, um, things that help us along the way. But the question is about where is our first priority? Where are we looking to as our saviour? What are we dedicated to above all else? We must serve God first. We must look to Him for help first. At, at least we should. But sadly, I think we could all agree that at times, if not as a pattern of our life, that's not the way that it is. We serve God sometimes, you know, when it's convenient. And we turn to Him when our own attempts to fix things have failed. We, we treat God like a get-out-of-jail-free card. That's a, a Monopoly reference for people who haven't played Monopoly before. I know those kinds of games are out of fashion. Um, we treat him like Santa, you know. Uh, give us the good things, please. Give us lots of good gifts, but then just leave us alone for the rest of the time. And this is how Israel treated God over the generations. Time after time, God gave them deliverance but then they forget God and they go back to their own concerns. And then when trouble comes along, they'll try every which way to solve it, except turning to God, at least for a time. And in the book of Judges, there's this perpetual cycle of God's people forgetting God, turning away from Him, rejecting Him. And so God gives them a taste of life without His blessing. You don't want me? Well, you mustn't want blessing that comes from God. I'll take away my blessing. He gives them over to their chosen life and they suffer greatly because of it. But what's interesting is the pattern of how long it takes them to realize and turn back to God. First time, it's eight years. That's still a pretty long time. The next time, it's 18 years and then 20 
it, then it shrinks back to seven. But you get the trend. They take years and years and years to realize their foolishness and to turn back to God for deliverance. This is a pattern that we're going to see week after week in Judges. We're going to try and cover one judge per week, but things are never uh, as simple as we would like to make them to fit into a nice, neat sermon series. So there are some judges that we only get a couple verses on, so we'll be covering them together with another judge. And some judges get a couple chapters dedicated to them, so we will have to take a couple weeks to cover them. But more or less, we're looking at a kind of a pattern of one judge per week. And this week we're covering Othniel. Othniel. But before we get to Othniel, we have a, a section in the book that gives us the, the paradigm, the pattern of what everything else is going to be like going forward. It's, a, it's an overview of everything that comes after. This section, this pattern, finishes with the supreme example of Othniel, the first judge, at the end. And then Othniel sits as this kind of template for all the rest to follow. And similarly, when we talked about uh, Psalms, uh, we mentioned that Psalm 1 and 2 kind of act as a template that the rest of the Psalms follow in some way, shape or form. Uh, Othniel is the first one that acts as a template that everybody else follows. So let's dive in. We'll see the first thing that kind of jumps off the page in this passage is that if you abandon God, you get what you seek. If you abandon God, you get what you seek. We're, we're in Judges. This is, this is after the conquest, the initial conquest of the land under Joshua, Yeshua, the guy who was the, the leader, the prophet, who spoke the words of God to the people and led them into battle, and they went and they triumphantly took over big swathes of the land that God had promised them to them. But after Joshua died, after the generation that was with Joshua died, there arose a generation that did not follow God. They did not know God. And what does that pattern look like? What does, sorry, what does that look like? They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the people around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and Ashtoreths. So they abandoned Yahweh, their deliverer, to serve other gods. But the thing is, if you, if we, we naturally are worshippers. God built us that way. That's, that's part of who we are. So we're naturally going to worship something or someone. The question is just, what is it? Is it going to be the true God who's actually worthy of worship? Or is it going to be created things? Creatures, people, ourselves. For the Israelites, they found themselves in the mix of these Canaanite religions with these tribes that are around them. Remember, these tribes are rebellious tribes. These are tribes that are rebelling against God. They are they're disobedient. They are evil. Um, an example of one of the things that was absolutely abhorrent that happened in the land that God was trying to drive out of the land was child sacrifice as a religious action. So these evil, um, wicked people around, God is pronouncing judgment on them by driving them out of the land. 
And so the Israelites are meant to come in as the people of God who are faithful to God, who would be like the Canaanites, doing the same exact things were it not for the grace of God and kindness of God in drawing them to himself and protecting them and giving them their religion that they were to follow. They were told to put away all the other gods and serve God only, the one true and living God. But as they went into the mix with all these other nations around them, they started to mix it up a little bit. A little bit of this, a little bit of that. We'll try out this Baal worship stuff. And the two ones that really stick out throughout the pages of the Old Testament are the Baals, Baals, and the Ashtoreth. So Baal literally means Lord or Master. And so it's in a similar sense to the way that we use the word God, right? When we use the word God, we're usually using it with a capital G, God, the one true God. But there are also um, times when we use the word to refer to uh, um, other gods, you know, gods that are not the God of gods, uh, false gods. And so the same can be done, used with the word Baal, right? It can refer to a particular person, Baal, the storm god of the Canaanites, who they uh, worshipped for the sake of fertility, to bring rain. At least that was the idea. But there's a variety of them, right? You could have Baals in different places. You go to one area and there would be, uh, I think there's Baal Peor is one that comes up. There would be a, a, a master or a god of a certain area. And so... I'm not sure if they thought that there was the, it was one god, Baal, who kind of was especially worshipped in different places or whether they thought of him as sort of multiple gods. But the point is that he was still a false god. And the other one that's mentioned there is the Ashtoreth, a, a, a goddess, uh, who was worshipped with these poles, the Ash, these Ashtara poles. Uh, she's, the, the name comes in a few different forms. You might come up with Ashtoreth, Asherah, um, Atharat. It was a goddess who was in uh, the, the pantheon of gods all over that region. So from up in Mesopotamia, all the way down through Palestine, Israel, in, and down even into Egypt and Arabia, potentially Arabia. So this is a, this is a goddess who was worshipped as a fertility goddess. And so you put yourself in the shoes of the people, they're agrarian, they rely on the rain, especially in a land that's not known for lots of water. They don't have heaps of rainfall in the year. The rivers and stuff, they don't have a massive network of rivers and water supplies. They rely on the rain to provide for their needs every year. And if the rain doesn't come, they don't eat, so to speak. They are living hand to mouth. But the land is fruitful when God supplies the rain. But when, when, when difficult times come, instead of turning to God for the, to look for rain, they would turn to these other gods. These, they would turn to these other gods thinking that they could supply what they need for their sustenance, for their survival. It would have felt natural as well because they've come out of Egypt They've come from a, a history of being people who worship a plethora of gods. 
And so it would have felt natural to go, oh, well, we've got the, the one God, but then we've got these other gods that we add into the mix. That doesn't make it right, but it would have felt natural to them in some respects. And in those religions around that area, there was a god, El, who was worshipped as the chief god among these plethora of gods with Baal and um, Ashtoreth as well. And so some people would make some connections. They'd go, well, El, that's, that's kind of like our god. Uh, there's some characteristics that are shared here. And it will, they kind of syncretize. They, they pull these things together. it's something that we see even now you'll see some people who go and do a study of religion and they'll go oh well this god you know zeus and jupiter and and allah they kind of share some characteristics and and some of their characteristics ascribed to them are also ascribed to the god yahweh so maybe it's just one it kind of shows up in different guises but of course that is is not the way you see even in false religion, false worship, it's in the world that God made. And so there's going to be elements of truth, of God's truth, that find their way even into false religions. Almost every, almost every religion across the world has some form of the thing, uh, the love your neighbor as yourself. It's a kind of a universally understood principle. It shows up everywhere. But that doesn't mean that all, there's truth in all of these religions because a little bit of truth shows up in them. There are glimmers of truth in other faiths, but this is because they're in a world that is made by God and try as they might, there will still be things that reflect God. But, but just because there is glimmers of truth across the spectrum doesn't mean that we get to kind of put together our own religion that suits us. We don't get to syncretize. We don't get to have a bit of this and a bit of that. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods. This is what God commanded the Israelites. And this is for us today as well. These false religions and their practices in Canaan were meant to be driven out of the land. They were meant to be driven out to make a holy place for God and his people to dwell together in peace and security. But instead of the Canaanites being driven out, by the coming of holiness, holy devotion to God, instead the, the Canaaniteness is seeping in to God's people. The, the Jews become, the Israelites become more like Canaanites instead of the Canaanites becoming more like Israelites. So we shouldn't mix the worship of God with anything else. Initially, it might seem harmless, a little bit of this will spice things up. It might feel overly scrupulous the way that we are so guarded about worship and what we do in the, in the, the service on a Sunday morning. But it's dangerous to mess around with these things. We want to be careful to make sure that we are being obedient to God and serving Him in the way that we worship, the way that we serve Him, the way that we live. We can look around and we can see examples of what happens when the worship gets a little bit mixed with other things. It's, I mean, we can point at a few different things. We can think about things like how idolatry has crept into the ancient churches with icons. And I know that they will qualify it and say, no, no, this isn't idolatry. But a lot of the time it leads to people looking to idols as their saviors. They look to them to save them 
and not to God. We can look at how therapeutic deism has pervaded many seeker-sensitive churches. They just want to say, God will fix all your problems. God will make things easy for you. Um, and just have this notional idea of God, not the God of the Bible. We can see how compassion and grace become gods in churches so that we don't speak on sin or God's judgment. And so sometimes we set up an idol that cannot save ourselves. And then we tell everybody that God just loves you. You don't need to worry about anything else. Nothing to worry about. It's like covering over a pit with straw and hay and sticks and then inviting somebody to walk over the top of it. Don't worry. Don't need to think about what's underneath. But although uh, we can point and we can see all the problems out there in the world... We're not immune. We don't point the finger to all the stuff out there as if we're aloof from it. If we are better off, it's only by the grace of God. And we must take care to continually root out any idolatry that rises up amongst us. We live like the Israelites, who are a people of God surrounded by false worship. And there is an ever-present temptation to take the society that we live in and marry it in with our faith somehow and usually the sign of that happening is when the trends outside are mimicked by trends in the church i think we should ask god to show us where we have compromised where we have syncretized where we've mixed the one true faith with jesus christ but be careful where you look for spiritual guidance because we could be mixing in outside influences with the one true faith. Um, John Calvin famously said that the heart is an idol factory. Even if we were to throw down every idol around us, we would still find some way of creating idols in our hearts. We need God to sanctify us and teach us to worship him in spirit and in truth from our hearts outward. And coming back to Judges, we see that God gives this people up, these people who refuse to worship him and serve him and go, they, they put him aside. And so he gives them a taste of what it's like to have life without him. Though he never left them, in his anger against Israel, he gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He gave them into the hands of their enemies all around whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them just as he had sworn to them, and they were in great distress. Here we see once again God's anger coming up, something that we've touched on in the last couple of weeks. And the reason we've touched on it is because it is in God's word. It's all over the place. We need to understand and know about God's anger against sin. The love of God and the grace of God only make sense in light of his anger towards sin. And so in God's anger, he gives the people over. So who's doing the giving? It's, it's, not, it's not these other nations like Cushan, Cushan Rishathaim, who we're going to talk about in a moment. Cushan Rishathaim. Um, God gives the people over. It's something that God actively does as part of his plan, right? God's not absent 
but he will seem distant as he gives them over to experience the consequences of what they're choosing. And I think of it like, I don't know if you kids have ever uh, done this, but I remember as a child sometimes being stubbornly refusing to go with my, with my mum. I refused to kind of get in the car because we were going somewhere. And so mum said, fine, you can stay here by yourself. And then mum drove, drove away. And, and in those moments, you're, that's when it sinks in. Oh, now I'm alone. I wasn't, I was locked out of the house. I was just alone, right? Left by myself. Now, mum was only doing a, a lap around the block and she came back and picked me up. But the point was that it kind of drove home the consequences of what I was asking for. And I felt it. And, and, I, and I know another story of a relative who, she was, she's decided she was going to leave home. I don't want to live here under, because she was upset with her parents for some reason. Don't want to live here anymore. I want to go. I want to go and be by myself. I want to choose my own path in the world. And so her mum helped her pack her bag with all the things she would need to leave home. And she went out the front door, but that's when it sank in, what she was choosing. So she went and hid underneath the stairs for a while and then sheepishly came back. But that's what it's like with God. God needs to kind of give us a taste of what we're chasing after, the consequences of what we're asking for when we rebel against him. And so God gives his people over. Here, try it out. See what it's like. If you don't want me, have a try with life without me. And it's a way that God kind of disciplines us and brings us to our senses. He lets us experience some trials and sufferings for our good. And then we end up in distress. And finally we realize, oh no, I've made a huge mistake. We need to turn back to God. As God hands us over, it's as though he, it's as though he says, you don't want my, the freedom and blessing with me, you can have the alternative, which is oppression under evil power. Because we, sometimes we think of, um, we, we think of, you know, not having to obey God, not live in righteousness. We think it's freedom, right? We look out into the world and we see the licentiousness, the, the, the kind of free way in which people sin and chase after all kinds of wickedness. And that looks like freedom. They're free to go and pursue all of these evils. But that's not real freedom. It's only freedom to pursue oppression because sin is an oppressive thing in our lives. Sin is an enslaving force in our lives. And so although sometimes it feels like, oh, I can't do this and I can't do that or I have to put this off, put this aside. But it's like pushing away sin, uh, pushing away poison right it's it's not a burden to push away poison and push away things that will harm us and hurt us danger sin is enslavement and so romans tells us that sometimes god gives people over to their sin because that's what they're pursuing that's what they want but romans also tells us that god saves people from this enslavement god saves people from their sin Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. 
We've been set free from sin in Jesus Christ. We've been set free. But God sometimes leaves us to experience the effects of our sin and the, of what we pursue, like he does with the Israelites. But God provides deliverance, although, unfortunately, it's quickly forgotten. God provides deliverance that's quickly forgotten. And so even though God handed over the people for a time, he delivers them. He hears their call. He hears their distress. He provides judges for them. Now, this book is called Judges, and they are called Judges throughout the pages. But when you hear that word judges, don't think of a guy wearing a wig and a robe down at the courthouse. Think of a, a chief, right? A, a warlord, a, a, a person who is respected in the community and who people go to with their problems. So obviously, there's the, the military side of it. These judges arise and then they go out and they win battles. But they would also be trusted to deal with issues, like people who would come with, uh, with quarrels and complaints, that they would, you know, um, they would kind of make decisions in cases. But not always. So, but you get this idea. And these, these judges weren't a judge over the whole nation in the sense of like a governor. They weren't uh, like kings or queens. They were in little, a, a small area. They would have an influence. So God raises up these judges, a series of judges. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, that's a bit small, but I'm reading from verse 18, if you want to read along in your Bibles, Judges 2, verse 18. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them from the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshipping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. You see, God is kind. He hears their cries. He delivers them from the trial. He delivers them from the, the situation that they were pursuing. And although he brought the judgment, he relents and is kind. He will not chide forever. He hears the cries of the broken and distressed. He acts. He provides deliverance. But this deliverance is quickly forgotten. A generation later, and they're worse off than before. They do, they do experience the deliverance of their enemies, but they're not delivered from the passions of their own heart, the desires of their own wayward hearts. And so the judge just kind of leaves this this longing for deliverance, a permanent deliverance that starts from the heart and goes out from the trouble that we cause ourselves. And of course, that's what God does provide in Jesus, the spirit who changes hearts and delivers us. But even now, as people who've received this truth, we can forget it. We take it for granted. Paul writes to the Galatians, only a few short years after the gospel had gone out and the church had been built, established. This is early, early days in Christianity. He says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. And skipping on a bit, 
Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. You see, it is so easy for us to wander astray. It's so, it's so, so tempting to hear interesting things, curiosity that piques our, piques our desires and, and we want to know more and we want to we get involved and it's just easy to kind of get led astray, to start walking again, taking small, simple steps off the path, away from the truth delivered to us in Jesus Christ. Let's, let's never forget the truth of the gospel. And that, of course, is part of the reason why we gather so regularly and remind ourselves of truth that we've heard a thousand times before, because we forget. We just get on with our lives and we forget what we heard. We need it to be drilled dear, down deep. And that's one of the beautiful things about music, right? When we sing these songs, it was such a great pleasure to hear some of those kids singing out uh, that last song with such a gusto, to hear that they had that truth. They knew it. It was embedded with them because they were able to sing it. In song, we, we receive God's truth and we're able to memorize it and have it sink down into our soul, so to speak. We should never depart from this gospel. Need to stick to it. Stick to it. We don't forget the deliverance of God through Jesus Christ. God gives us some great examples of what happens, you know, with the seed that's scattered on different types of soil. There's the, there's the one who the, the, the birds come and snatch the seed away as though the, the word is being taken away and people can't hear it and understand it. There's those for who um, they receive the word initially but they don't stick it out. The sun withers, the trials come. There's those for whom they receive the word, but the cares of the world choke it out. There is this danger for us that we should take care to steer clear from. Do not forget God. But interestingly, God tests for obedience. God uh, hands over Israel not only for disciplinary consequences, but it was for testing and building resilience. God tests for obedience. Have a look at chapter 3, verse 1. These are the nations the Lord left to test all those Israelites who had not experienced any of the wars in Canaan. He did this only to teach warfare to the descendants of the Israelites who had not previous battle experience. And then it goes on and lists a bunch of the nations, which I'm not going to go through right now. But God is testing them. He gives them opportunities to, to be faithful, gives them opportunities to learn, gives them opportunities to learn warfare. And in this case, a spiritual warfare. <clears throat> you might think, Samuel, no, it was literal warfare. They took up swords and they went out to battle. Yes, I know. And in this case, in the context of what God was asking them to do, this is, was spiritual warfare. No, I'm not suggesting you need to take up swords, but I'm saying that, this is a theological history. This is teaching us about God and his way with the world and about how his people stand or fall. And in this case, God's using these tests and trials to build them and prepare them. And God uses even the worst trials to shape us for our future good. 
In James, it says, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Yes, your salvation comes as a gift from God, but God calls you to obedience. God calls you to stand strong. God calls you to learn by the testing of your faith, to have it strengthened so that you will endure to the end, so that you'll glorify him with your life. God doesn't entrap us. He doesn't tempt you, as the next verses go on to say. You're not, God doesn't come and tempt you, but God does test us. All right. So I've covered these. Uh, this is just the overview, the pattern of what will come every time. And what we're going to end with now is the pattern lived out in this first judge, Othniel. Othniel stands as the template of all the judges. It, this, uh, these, these few verses that we're going to go through one by one is the template of all the judges that have gone before and fits the template of just the stuff that we've just covered, we've just been talking about in the last little while. So, we get Othniel, the good template. In verses 7 and 8 of chapter 3, <clears throat> the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. We already said that before. This is, part, this is, this is happening, just like it said. <coughs> they forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. Yes, familiar. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel, so they sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Aram Naharim, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. This is exactly what we were told was going to happen. And here it is, the first example of it happening in this time. So, they're serving the Baals and the Asherahs. God's anger is revealed against them. He sells them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim. So, who's doing the selling? God's doing the selling. Cushan is not strong enough to take on God. The only reason why he was able to prevail is because God's at work. And just a note on that, when you look out in the world today and you see all the things that are going wrong, you see the, the global politics and the machinations of governments, and we don't need to fear. Yes, we pray. We pray for God to provide order and God to give us good leaders, etc. But whoever ends up in power or not in power, it's all part of God's plan. It's all part of what God is doing in the world. We trust him with the machinations of, uh, of, of countries and, and politics and all that kind of thing. So the, the Lord hands over uh, the people to Cushan Rishathaim, king of Navarim, uh, Aram Naharim. So that's king of Mesopotamia to the northeast of Israel. But you might think, we, that's a bit of a weird name. So his name there, Cushan Rishathaim, means Cushan the doubly evil or Cushan of the two crimes. Like he's, he's doubly wicked. It's a little bit like a, a name you might have heard of, Ivan the Terrible. It's a, it's a name that might be used to invoke fear or it might be a nickname that he got because he was a pretty bad guy. So Cushan, uh, the doubly evil, the king in Mesopotamia. So this sets up this, this picture of God's people being under a guy who is doubly evil, doubly bad. There's these consequences. They, they forsake the Lord they don't want to serve the Lord, so who do they end up serving? They end up serving the doubly bad guy. Like that's, the old, that's your options there. Serve the Lord or be oppressed. 
what would it look like for them to serve Cush and Rishathaim? Probably heavy taxation, monetary, but also goods, you know, they probably would have had to bring tribute of grain and, uh, and livestock and all those kinds of things, forced labour potentially. What happens next? They cried out to the Lord. He raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother who saved them. So here God does what we just talked about before. He raises up a deliverer. In this case, it's Othniel. Othniel is, uh, is Caleb's younger, oh, sorry, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother who saved them. Now, there's a little bit of confusion here because it seems like in one place it says that Othniel is Caleb's nephew, um, and here it says that he's his younger brother. I didn't get into the weeds of, of how they worked that out, but it's definitely, I, I know one thing's for sure, uh, Othniel is Caleb's son-in-law because Othniel married Caleb's daughter, Aska, which we talked about in the previous passage. Caleb's a, a good guy, and so is Othniel. This is good stock. This is good news. We're seeing God's people, a, a faithful remnant of God's people in Israel. And here is Othniel, the, the guy who has gone in and with Caleb and the rest of his family. They've gone in and taken the land. They've won battles against the, the bad guys. And so this is good news. We've got Othniel. Othniel probably means God is my strength. You know, we're seeing the strength of God arise in his people. He saved them. He saved them. They turned to God for help, and he saved them through his deliverer. They couldn't do it. How did God do it? The Spirit of the Lord came upon him <coughs> so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. God's Spirit was at work. Now, don't think in the same sense of the New Testament where we think of the, the Holy Spirit coming on God's believers and indwelling them all their life. This, in the Old Testament, there's a bunch of figures where God's Spirit comes upon them for a purpose, like Saul, and God's Spirit leaves Saul somewhere down the track. But God's Spirit comes and works in His people, comes and works in the Deliverer so that they go to war, and He gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered him. So God's Deliverer rises up and wins the day. And what's the result of God's deliverance? The land had peace for 40 years. But then we get this ominous words. Until Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. So God's deliverer comes. He delivers the people. And there is peace and rest. Until the deliverer dies. And so you're kind of left, oh, man. Well, what now? What's going to happen next? And if you just look over to the next verse, you will see exactly what happens next. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And so this, this pattern leaves us hungering. It leaves us wanting a deliverer that's going to provide permanent deliverance. A deliverer, perhaps, who doesn't die. If there was only a deliverer who doesn't die, then it could be permanent. The rest could stay forever. Well, what if God provides us a deliverer who does die, but then comes back in victory? He dies to defeat 
the oppressor of God's people. He dies to defeat death. He dies to defeat sin. He dies to defeat Satan. He dies to take away the wrath of God. And then he comes back to stay. That, of course, is Jesus Christ, our Lord, the one who delivers us from all of our needs, all of, all of our oppressors. He gives us rest and he has promised us an eternal rest. But this isn't just something that's promised for a future day. As we read before in, first, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul talks about the deliverance that God gave him, even in the trials that he was facing. He was out there in Asia. He was at work, doing the Lord's work, serving the God, trying to build up the church, evangelize, preach, teach. And he says, we were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure. So we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such peril and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. And brothers and sisters, I hope that this can be your pattern of living. Yes, there will be times when you are faced with great trials. There will be times when you despair of life itself. But who are you going to look to? Who are you going to look to for deliverance? Where will you turn? It will happen so that you might not rely on yourself, but look to God who raises the dead. And even if your trial and suffering leads to your death, you, you still have hope because God raises the dead. He is the one who raises the dead. He's the one who triumphs over the grave so that any suffering and trial that we face has a good ending, even if it doesn't feel like it right now. He will deliver us, and so we set our hope on him that he will continue to deliver us. Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the deliverance that we have in and through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, for anybody here who does not know this deliverance in Jesus, that you might deliver them today from, from the oppression of Satan, sin, and the devil. I pray, Lord, that you might, you might give them freedom in Christ. I pray, Lord that you might help us all to know this freedom. And Lord, as people who are freed from the oppression of sin, help us not to turn back to that, like, like a, a pig going back to the mud after being washed, like a dog returning to its vomit. We pray, Lord, that you would keep us from turning back to the things which have caused us trouble, which have caused us pain, which have enslaved us. Lord, keep us free in Christ. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to worship you only, Help us, Lord, to, to diligently follow you, to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Only, Lord, you can accomplish this because left to our own devices, Lord, we would go astray just like the people of God have so many times before us. Lord, keep us, protect us, lead us for the sake of your holy name, we pray. Amen.